0: Welcome to this special edition of the Noopy podcast. My name is Alana Wilson-Rove, and I am joined by the 2018 Nils Klim Laureate, Francesca Refsem Jansenius. Dr. Jansenius is a senior research fellow at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, and she will receive this year's Niels Klim prize for her outstanding research on elections, development patterns, and the empowerment of minority groups and women in India and elsewhere. Francesca, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on being selected for the Niels Klim Prize. Thank you so much. As a Niels Klim Laureate, you are one of so far 15 young Nordic researchers since 2004 who have been recognized in this way for outstanding research in the humanities, social sciences, law, or theology. And all of this happens before the age of 35. Today, I hope we can hear a bit about your research and explore some of the paths that have led you to where you are today. So, first, kind of the million dollar, the million kroner question how would you summarize your research in just a few sentences?
1: Um, so, I'm a political scientist. I work in comparative politics and comparative political economy. Um, I would say my main research interest is in how um, electoral dynamics and institutional. Uh, designs for for state institutions affect different types of uh, inequality in society. So for example, what happens uh, to the distribution of resources when you change who's in power? Uh, what happens to social norms and relations when the state comes in and tries to, you know, mandate change? Uh, and how can we best design electoral systems and other institutions so that uh, we end up with in, in both inclusive and well-functioning um, politics?
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of your work has been about these sort of mandated changes in society, including quota policies. For example, last year you published a book, which is called The Social Justice Through Inclusion, The Consequences of Electoral Quotas in India, with Oxford University Press. Can you tell us a bit more about that book and how you got interested in this topic? Um, so that book is um, about the long-term long-term
1: consequences of um Electoral quotas or political quotas for the so-called schedule castes in India. The schedule castes are uh, the group that used to be called the intouchables in India, so the, the lowest ranked group in the Indian caste system. Um, and India has had these extensive electoral quotas for this group since uh, independence, so since about 1950. And uh, the way these quotas work is that uh, there are reserved positions all across the country in proportion to how many SEs there are in the area. Uh, And I got interested in this topic uh, actually when I studied in Delhi, at Delhi University, as an exchange student. Um, I studied Hindi there, uh, but ended up going to a lot of political events because I found it fascinating. And um, one of the things I found really surprising at the time were all these massive protests among students against quotas and i guess coming from norway and maybe being uh, naively positive i thought that quotas are a good things they're about they're about including excluded groups into both politics and other positions while i encountered these massive protests with um, students being very upset about quota politics in the educational sector. And so I started reading up on it and got more and more interested in um, the different types of quota policies that they have had and the effects of them. And uh, this book then became my dissertation project, my PhD project. And I've been working on it then for a, for a long time and sort of uh, developed it further. Um, and the main uh, focus has really been on trying to uh, see using a lot of different types of data sources and information to try to see what's happened after more than fifty years of electoral quotas.
0: So, who was right? Was it the nineteen-year-old Norwegian student who felt that quotas are a good thing, or the students in in Delhi protesting against the quota system?
1: Oh, so that's that's um, that is the question I usually get about this book, and it's it's a hard question, um, and it's a hard question because what I've come to realize working on quota systems is that. There is no easy answer. It's actually this is a political question. It's a normative question. What do you think is good and bad? Uh, What I really emphasized in this book is to try to exactly untangle or distangle um, those political normative questions from the empirical questions. Because what very often happens in the study of quotas is that what we want to see really shapes Uh, how we study them and the conclusions we draw. And so what I try to do is to take a step back and say, well, uh, what are all the possible consequences you could expect from a quota system? And then my book sort of has different chapters looking at different types of outcomes, trying to say, well, this happened, this didn't happen, this happens, this didn't happen. Try to understand uh, why we see this collection of consequences and not others. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, I can tell you that there are trade-offs and there are trade-offs If you put in a quota policy, you'll see changes in uh, political choices that are made, in who sits with political power, and then that becomes your political question. Who would you like to sit with political power, and how would you want resources to be distributed? So there is, therefore, no straightforward answer to that question. Although, I must say, to not give the boring academic answer, I think I have come down on the side of being... uh, Weakly positive to the quota system in India because I think it uh, helps to reduce very long-standing inequalities in society, um, and I, I consider that a very good thing.
0: Well, I think what's fascinating about your your body of research is that in trying to examine this question of quotas as an empirical question, you've basically left no stone unturned in terms of methods. You've looked from every every different direction, and in two thousand sixteen. You won another prize for an article coming out of the same project as the book. And I know that at the time, one of the aspects that was especially celebrated was the data work and the methodological work of the, the project. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I guess as my, my story suggests, I, I came to this project very much from a qualitative angle, from living in India, from hearing people's stories about it. And the first things I wrote about the quota system were Uh, based on archival work and looking at uh, what people would have um, called, I guess, the intended consequences of the quota system. Because very often when we ask about quotas, people say, well, have they done what they were intended to do? And so uh, I wanted to sort of get a better grasp of what were they actually intended to do. So I went back to historical sources looking at Um, how the quota policies were discussed in the early 20th century before they were put in place. And what became very clear to me was that there was no one intended consequence. There were different actors with very different visions and hopes for what this policy would do. Um, And hearing then these different perspectives and also doing interviews and hearing people having very different takes on the quota system, I started to miss um, a a bigger picture, a larger end picture of the the patterns uh, over time. And therefore I started as part of my PhD work originally, to gather a very large amount of different times of, of quantitative data to, to try to look more uh, with quantitative material on um, long-term effects of the quotas. And I think this is quite typical for a lot of my work, is that I, I often combine um, a lot of qualitative inquiries in archives and interviews with these large uh, data sets. And I find at least that that's uh, helps me feel confident about the conclusions I reach. I feel that the qualitative work informs the quantitative work, and vice versa. Um, Another thing that I spent a lot of time figuring out for this project was uh, how to be able to draw some kind of causal conclusions. This is a challenge we very often have in the social sciences, is that when we look at the world today, where we look at what we call observational data, it's very hard to know whether uh, you know the world would have looked differently if that policy hadn't been in place what is the correct counterfactual to look at here and so what i, I what i did and i think um what you're referring to that it was particularly pointed out uh, for for that other price i received for this project was that i i tried to use aspects of the quota system to um to get at causal effects and i did that by comparing very, very similar places that got a quota policy and not a quota policy in the 70s, and then trace them over time for, for more than 30 years. So um, it was really trying to go back to the design of the policy that allowed me to compare very similar places. And by comparing very similar places over a long period of time, I have at least more confidence that uh, the changes that I see over time is due to the quota policies and not other, um, other confounding factors.
0: Very interesting. And I think um, that takes us easily to this next question of then, what are your most important conclusions? What's By comparing these similar places, one with quota system, one one without, what did you find out about the impact of quotas? So I think one of the very strong expectations in India was that these
1: quota policies would result in what I refer to as group representation. That is, uh, the minority politicians coming into power, particularly sort of Uh, working for their group interest, and it's an expectation that you therefore should see more development for that group in areas with quotas. And we don't see that at all. And it's actually very logical you don't see that at all. The way these quota policies are designed, uh, minority politicians are elected in areas where there are primarily non-minority Voters, and so they have every electoral incentives to work sort of in a similar way as other politicians. They're also completely integrated into mainstream political parties, and so putting them into power doesn't actually change uh, policy or uh, resource distribution very much. Uh, what you do see massive changes on, though, is uh, the influence of these communities in. Um, decision making in terms of presence in politics, presence in cabinets where they don't have reserved seats. Um, you see a big change in stereotypes about who should hold positions of power. You see um, members of this minority community gradually gaining know how of the political game, gaining confidence. And you see, so basically, you see that the quota policy uh, breaks a lot of social boundaries, but does not create. Um, group representation in, in terms of them having a very different political agenda than others. Um, and this, I think, is, is quite typical for the inclusion of people with certain attributes. I think it's easy to sort of want to see people with certain ap- attributes, particularly if they're um, traditionally marginalized. You kind of want them to behave very differently in politics than others. But in reality, when you speak to politicians themselves, they often don't want to be perceived as group representatives. They often want to be allowed to work on whatever they are interested in politically. And so um, one perspective here, which I I try to present in the book, is that Policies that include a group are really important because they prevent the systematic exclusion of people with certain characteristics, but once they are in power, you really shouldn't expect them to behave that differently from other uh, politicians. That's
0: an interesting finding. Do you think that's um, generalizable to other political contexts? Um,
1: I do think it is generalizable, although, of course, every context is a bit different. In the book, one of the main arguments I develop is I try to distinguish between uh, quota policies uh, or other policies that are designed really to incentivize group representation. So that would be if you are elected, for example, as a woman with a sort of a very clear mandate to represent women's interest, whatever that is, um, you will feel that you should do that and you you will do that politically. And so there are examples of of policies uh, where that kind of incentive structure is very clear. But then the majority of quota policies, like quotas into political parties, the quotas I study in India, et cetera, uh, they are mostly about politicians entering because of some attributes. But once they are in power, they face the same type of uh, electoral incentive structure as other politicians. Um, And so I think we should expect uh, fairly different outcomes from those two types of quota policies. If you have a quota policy that incentivizes group representation, you will see that politician actively standing up and sort of trying to voice a certain agenda for a specific group. If you have a quota policy that incentivizes group inclusion, you will see um, that uh, politician primarily, uh, you know, gradually being integrated. And you will see long term sort of reductions in discrimination and, uh, and stereotypes about who should hold political power. So, um Although in every context this will play out a little bit differently, I do think that this overall idea of how quota policies can be designed in different ways and therefore will have different types of consequences, I think applies to uh, pretty much uh, yeah, most con- contexts in the mm. world.
0: It's a very important distinction in what a field, as you say, has been marked by a lot of a mixture of political, normative, and empirical claims. But in addition to all of this work on quota policies, you have a number of other articles about political parties' elections and development in India more generally. Can you tell us a bit about this broader backdrop to your research? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so a, a really longstanding interest of mine um, has been to better understand how, how both electoral outcomes and um, party politics, so so the organisational structure of political parties, for example, shape political patterns in India. And and uh, I mean I have uh, several different studies, but to give an example, I'm I'm doing work with um, a collaborator, Pavitra Surya Narayan, at at SIS, where we're working on looking at rerunning patterns of politicians in India. Um, and we think this is important because. Stable linkages between parties and candidates is something that we tend to take for granted in theorizing about politics. But if you look at uh, both India and actually many countries in the world candidates often tend to rerun for other parties. And so there's a lot of swapping around between the linkages between parties and candidates. And that creates a very confusing electoral environment. And so in one paper, for example, we are thinking about this issue of economic voting. In the Western world, we often take it for granted that if the economy is doing well, people will tend to vote more for the incumbent. And so it's sort of seen as a very logical thing that you see economic voting. In India, we haven't seen much evidence of economic voting. And then I think it's easy to jump to the conclusion that Indian voters are not rational or um, they, they vote primarily on ethnicity or other stuff. But what we show is that in circumstances where the same candidate and party run together, you do see clear evidence of economic voting. And so we're arguing that Um, stable linkages between parties and candidates is one of those underlying assumptions that is necessary for for voters to be able to reward or punish um, parties. And I think this is a great example of how um, studying a country like India can help us become much more aware of underlying assumptions in models of party politics and electoral dynamics also in the Western world.
0: It's a fascinating use of the Indian studies to push back against assumptions about political science theories that are often described as universal, but maybe much more based in in a Western or European experience. Now, in your current research project, you're also doing a lot of comparison and asking big questions. And the name of this project is legal regimes and women's economic agency can you tell us a bit about the main goals there
1: yeah yeah so this is um yeah another uh, research project i have one you know uh, maybe the biggest ongoing research project i have uh it's a collaboration with uh uh, maletoon professor of political science at the university of new mexico and what we're doing here is really to uh, try to use our experiences from different contexts so me uh, a lot from india she's a latin america expert Um, to think about uh, comparing how different states use rules, regulations, laws, to try to change uh, gender norms and gender stereotypes in different contexts. And so that project is really about trying to lift um, a lot of the you know, micro level knowledge, we have a different context and and draw sort of bigger comparative lines about state approaches to gender inequality. Um, and we have again a number of papers in this project, but I think um, it might be interesting to mention uh, one we're working on in Mexico. So in Mexico, for example, they had this massive legal change in two thousand and seven uh, that tried to go after lots of types of violence against women. And violence against women is important for, Uh, ...both women's um, economic agency and political participation... ...because it really affects um, uh, the work environment that women are in... ...and whether women even uh, feel comfortable going into the public arena. Um, And so we are interested then in the consequences of this law... And again, I I guess it's difficult for my work. I'm interested in thinking about what should we really expect to see and what do we see as a consequence of the law. And in in this example, we uh, don't see very big changes in the short run on the number of women who report a violence, but when we go and probe about attitudes towards violence, for example, knowledge of what is violence, then we see massive shifts. And we think this is really important because it's easy if you're too focused on just the numbers of women who experience violence, to um, think that, oh, this law did nothing, it's a weak institution. But uh, we think it's a pretty big deal that in just a few years you see completely differently expressed attitudes to what is violence, uh, is what is violence okay, is violence something that should be uh, reported on or not, so attitudes, and we hope that those gradual shifts in social norms um, in the longer run are likely to shape uh, the more sort of hard um, outcomes that you would want to see, such as higher reporting, or a fewer women saying they experience violence at all.
0: That's fascinating, the multiple ways of looking to understand social change and if rules and policies have the consequences one might hope for. Now, it's still early days in your big project on women's economic agency, but thinking back on that project and on everything else you've accomplished in the last 10, 15 years, what are you particularly happy about or proud of?
1: Oh, wow, that's a difficult question. Um, I think I'm particularly proud, actually, of um, some of the really large data sets I've developed, um, both because I've had long-term funding and um, a lot of freedom to work on what I wanted what I wanted to work on. I've I've really been able to invest in collecting pretty large databases that um, I've now been able to share with others. And so I guess I'm particularly proud of... Um, Uh, The full database on Indian elections that I now, in collaboration with Ashoka University, have put online. And it has both like an interface to to visualize the data and to download it, etc. And so it's a pretty massive resource that we can already see a lot of people using. And so I'm really happy to have been able to contribute sort of... um, important raw data that is now going into a lot of research. and means that we, over the next few years, will get to know a lot more about politics in India.
0: So Francesca, looking at your CV, it's one of, of travel. You got your PhD from Berkeley, you did your MA at Duke in the United States, and you have your bachelor's from the University of Oslo. What brought you to these places? And maybe even more important, why political science and why India?
1: Um, well, the why India is, is actually, it was a bit by chance. Um, I applied and got into uh, the United World Colleges when I was 16 Um, and so I got into that's a school system that's international you do the international baccalaureate the IB in a different country and I was sent to the school in India and so I lived there for two years from I was 16 to 18 um, and had a great time with students from all over and ended up traveling a lot in India and so I think that experience both got me really interested in the social sciences because there's so many interesting things to study in the Indian context and in particular it got me really interested in India and when I came back to Norway I ended up then starting to study um, Hindi Urdu, and uh, political science at the university and that sort of naturally merged into Indian politics which is what I've been focusing on ever since.
0: Now, you have a lot of interesting projects. You have your book recently out with Oxford University Press, a lot of strong academic journal articles. Is there a recipe for this success or advice you'd give on how to stay the course? Uh, well, a first thing I would say is to really
1: focus on um, stuff one is interested in. I see a lot of students thinking that they should be strategic in what they choose, but I find that I can only complete an, a, a good academic project if I'm really passionate about the topic. Um, and so, so I think that would be a, a key advice is to really follow one's passion as much as possible. Um, another thing that's, I think, been really important for me is to Uh, be fortunate enough to have really long-term funding that allowed me to invest in big data collections, thinking uh, about big questions, sort of, um, if you are constrained by uh, short-term funding on different topics, I don't think it's possible to uh, really invest so much in these long-term projects that I think can end up being much more influential and important, um, both in terms of academical impact and in terms of societal relevance. Um, And then I have been, I think I've been extremely lucky in having a very flexible and supportive employer in being at NUPI. Um, They have allowed me to, uh, you know, stay in touch with the international networks that I I work closely with to go on several really interesting research trips abroad um, and really have focused on um, letting me develop into... Uh, in the direction that I wanted to develop in. And so I can only say that I'm extremely grateful to NUPI for having given me that um, support and flexible structure that has allowed me to really thrive in the work that I do.
0: Now, if we have to think about what are the challenges faced by you or by other young researchers, what are some of the challenges left to be worked on here? Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, there are some challenges. I mean, I think there are... There's a lot of focus now on young researchers doing great work. There's a lot of, um, of, of of grant opportunities. There's a lot of focus on it. But there is still a reality that many young researchers have temporary contracts uh, and end up then having to think very short-term in what they do. Uh, similarly, people have often short-term funding, which means they cannot invest in these long-term ideas. And I think, um, really, if one wants great research, great research takes time. And, and it's important then to invest in letting people work on topics for a long time, plus having continuity in what they work on instead of jumping from topic to topic. Um, I also think that uh, although internationalization and mobility is great and gives people wonderful experiences and allow th- allows them to do better work, uh, it can be really hard for people's personal lives. And I've seen lots of examples of um, people going abroad on on long trips and therefore that... Um, having their family suffer for it because their their family cannot come with them, for example. And uh, this challenge on what you do with uh, combining a personal life with your international research career, I think is becoming more of a challenge now that we have uh, more women uh, entering in high-level academic positions because it's not no longer evident that it's the wife that's going to leave everything and follow um, a husband to the field or to another job or internationally. This is not only a challenge in research it's also you know in the diplomacy and in um, a lot of the NGO world etc but I really don't think we've found good solutions yet to have to have uh, two uh, well-functioning careers with a lot of mobility um, and making people's personal lives work. And that's something where I think a lot more thinking is needed to find a good balance.
0: There are indeed those challenges with mobility and internationalization. In your research, however, you've still managed to spend a lot of time in interesting places, in India, the UK, the US, Colombia. And so if you look beyond your research findings, what are some of the most interesting things you've learned about cultural differences, political systems, or simply human interaction and communication across various kinds of distance?
1: Uh, well, I think the first one that comes to mind is probably that there are many ways of doing things that are... Um, I think it's easy to think that the way we do it is the best, but there are, there, I think there are many ways of being happy um, in the world. Um, another thing is probably that although the world is becoming really globalized, um, there are still some really important cultural differences. And it's particularly become clear to me that we often um, speak past each other in, for example, having different understandings of what a word means. And so the example I gave previously, for example, in in how we find uh, changes in, in attitudes towards violence in Mexico, in our work on Mexico, um, what, one of the things we're seeing is that people start identifying different types of actions as violence and I think that's also something we're seeing in the Me Too campaign is that the whole attention around sexual harassment and sexual assault is expanding people's understanding of what sexual harassment and assault is and that's important because you can say in any context if you ask someone are you in favor of violence of course you know everyone would say they're not in they're not in favor of violence. Um, But if you mean different things with the word violence, you can still completely misunderstand each other uh, in many contexts. And so that's really something uh, that I've come to think of as really important in intercultural dialogue. And then I think a third thing I'd like to mention is, uh, I think I have really realized, and I've come to think it's important not to take ourselves so seriously, because the world is full of people who are the most important in their context. But as soon as you sort of step two kilometers in some direction, no one else knows who that is. <laughs> and so it's really important to just realize that um, there are lots of great people in the world and um, yeah, not to take ourselves too seriously.
0: So for our last question, where do you go from here? What's next?
1: Um, well, uh, first of all, I, I mean, I'm in the middle of working on uh, two book manuscript and lots of articles. So I'm going to continue with Uh, Similar research to what we've been talking about, and I'm very excited about several of those projects. Um, As of next month, I'm also starting as an associate professor at the political science department at the University of Oslo. And so I will start uh, teaching from fall. I'm very excited about that. I'll get to teach um, both qualitative and quantitative research methods. Um, and also to get to teach uh, courses related to my research on state approaches to inequality. And so I'm very excited about getting to share more of my work with students and to um, be part of developing their projects, as that is something I'm, I find extremely inspiring.
0: Well, Dr. Insanias, thank you very much for speaking with us today, and congratulations again on being the 2018 Nils Klim Laureate. Thank you.